Genesis chapter 6. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons, and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, our hearts are open before you tonight, and we pray as we come to look at your word, we ask that where we need to be encouraged, that you would encourage us, and where we need to be challenged, please would you challenge us. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. It'd be a great help if you could keep your Bibles open at Genesis 6, that's page 8 of the church Bibles. 
A few months ago, Apple launched um, a significant addition to its high-tech range of gadgets. Um, it brought out the new iPad, and I gather it caused quite a stir. I, I heard there was even a queue overnight of hundreds of people waiting to be the first to get their hands on this new product when it came out in the shops. Maybe some of us here tonight was even in that queue, I don't know. Um, but one of, the, one of the strap lines that Apple used in their hype surrounding the launch of the iPad was that the iPad would change your world. The iPad would change your world. Now, that's quite a big claim to make, isn't it? But you know, that's, that's quite a clever marketing strategy. You see, we all know that our world isn't quite right. We need something to just make it a bit better, to fix it. We're missing something that would just finish it off. And Apple knows that when they devise these strap lines. See, we all know something is wrong with our world. I don't just mean the backlog of emails that I gather this new iPad can help you with. There's something, something about our work, about our relationships, about our energy levels, about the sort of disappointments in life. It, it just isn't quite right. There's something wrong with the world. It's just not quite right. Um, and of course, there's much suffering in the world, much distress. I, I heard in the news this week about a man who suffered a stroke, and because of the stroke, he's been left paralyzed. And such is his life now that he just wants to die. And that is incredibly tragic, isn't it? There is something deeply wrong with this world, something that's not right about this life. And as we turn to Genesis 6, we find a world just like our own. It's the same world, and it's a world that's not right. There's something wrong with it, something that needs to be fixed. We've, um, we've missed out Genesis 5 in our series uh, looking at the early chapters of Genesis, but as we glance through Genesis 5, we, we read a list that is pretty grim. We have that phrase that goes, so-and-so lived, and then they died, and then they died, and then they died. It goes on person after person, generation after generation, and as we read it, we're meant to think, it's not meant to be that way. That's not how God made the world to be. He made us to live with God. And as we come to the final character in chapter 5, Lamech, he captures well the mood of the world in Genesis. Look down at uh, Genesis 5, verse 28. Verse 28 when Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. Lamech chose the name Noah because Noah sounds like the Hebrew word for comfort. And Lamech was longing for comfort. You can see why. Um, God has cursed the ground, and it's painful. Work is hard. It's a tough place to be. What is wrong with, with Lamech's world? What is wrong with our world? Why is it so hard? What needs to be fixed about the world we live in? Well, tonight in Genesis 6, we see God's analysis of our world. He sees his take on the world we find ourselves in, his his verdict, if you like, of what's happened. 
And just a word of, by way of a health warning, it's not easy reading. It's not a, a cheerful topic. There's some pretty stern stuff in our passage tonight. But also, let me assure you, there is good news as well, and we'll get onto that. So don't worry, it's not all uh, uh, serious and difficult. There is some great news as well. So what is, what is God's take of our world? What, what's his analysis of what's gone wrong? Well, I want to look at three things tonight. You'd not be surprised. Three things. Firstly, um, what God sees. Secondly, what God feels. And thirdly, what God promises. What he sees, what he feels, what he promises. So firstly, what God sees. Well, glance down at um, Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Or verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. Verse 12, God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So what does God see? Well, it's painfully obvious, isn't it? He sees evil. He sees corruption all over the world. And it's all the more painful when we think back to Genesis 1, when God made the world. And there was that lovely refrain that came through again and again, God made it, and he saw that it was good. It was good. And at the end of the chapter, it was very good. But then here, five chapters later, God sees, and it was evil. In five short chapters, the world has spun out of control. It's all gone terribly wrong. And what God sees is no longer good, but evil. So what exactly is going on? What does God see? What kind of evil is present on the earth? Well, have a quick glance at uh, 6 verse 1. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. These, uh, these verses are tricky, but the main point we're going to see is that God sees arrogance, presumption on behalf of humanity. Let me try to uh, show you why I say that. Um, who are the sons of God uh, in verse 2? Well, uh, I think most commentators go for the fact that these are angels. Certainly elsewhere in the Old Testament, sons of God um, do mean angels. And so what I think is happening in verse 2 is that angels are having illicit relationships with women. Um, sounds bizarre. Uh, it sounds twisted, strange. And you know what? I think we're meant to see it that way. We're meant to read that and go, what? Is that possible? How could that possibly be the case? But that's the whole point. The world has spun out of control. Remember back in Genesis 2, God gave us his, his blueprint for marriage. He said, between one man, one woman for life. And yet here in chapter 6, we see a, a very twisted, a very distorted version of, of marriage. And I take it in verse 4 that Nephilim are the offspring of this angel-human relationship, however that works. But it, the point is, it is a very, it's a very messed up world, and it's not how it should have been. 
And there, there's a wordplay uh, in verse 2, which our versions kind of smooth over, but I think shows us what's going on. We're told uh, the sons of God married any other woman they chose. And that word married is the very same word used back in Genesis 3 to describe when Eve took the fruit from the tree. It's the, it's the word to take. The sons of God took the woman. And the pattern of Genesis 3, to see and to take, that Eve uh, followed. That same pattern is happening in, in Genesis 6. The sons of God saw and they took. It conveys an attitude of um, ignoring God, of, of rebellion, of, of selfish uh, independence. Uh, who cares what God's plan is? I'm doing my own thing. That's, that's the, the, the heart, the mindset of this world in Genesis 6. I've called it arrogance, uh, presumption. This is the evil that God sees in his good world. And, and the, the seed that Eve and Adam sowed in Genesis 3, well, it's born fruit uh, in, a, in a very awful way across the whole world in what we see happening in these chapters, in these verses. But what about us here at St. Andrews? I've only been here a number of weeks, but I've yet to hear about any um, angelic marriages amongst anyone here. So, I mean, how does this apply to us today? Well, certainly the, the mindset of independence from God, of selfish arrogance, is one that applies to us far too easily. But also look down at verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil all the time. This verse just piles up the words there, doesn't it? Every inclination, only evil, all the time. It's, it's grim stuff, isn't it? There's, there isn't really a way out, is there? This is a, a verdict, a comment on our hearts today. This is what God sees when he looks at the world. He sees the public um, ignoring of his command for marriage, but also he sees the private heart behind closed doors. He sees everything. Lamech, uh, in chapter 5, saw the painful toil of the world. But God looks even deeper than that. There's even a, a more serious problem with the world, and it's, it's the human heart being exposed before us. Theologians call uh, this doctrine the doctrine of total depravity. Uh, it's the idea that, um, not that we do all the time the worst possible thing, but it's that every action we do is somehow tainted um, by sin. When I go shopping, I seem to have this ability to pick that shopping trolley with the wobbly wheel. You know the kind of trolley I'm talking about. And you're walking on the aisle looking at the cornflakes, and you find yourself drifting off into a, a big display of biscuits, and it's all very embarrassing. I'm sure you've all been there at some point. But, but, but I think in some way that, that kind of shows us a bit like what our heart is like. We know where we should be headed, but we just find ourselves veering off into the pile of biscuits, somehow just, just heading away where we shouldn't be. We have a, a bias in our hearts away from God and towards sin. And that's, that's the picture that, that we see of, of, of our hearts in Genesis 6. We all know that children love to, to play hide and seek. It's always great fun, isn't it? And often with my niece and nephew, their version of hide and seek is to sit down in the middle of the floor and cover their face and assume that because they can't see me, I can't see them and say so that they've hidden themselves. But I think so often we do that with God, don't we? We think we can't see God, so he can't see us. 
But verse 5, we're told God sees our hearts. Behind the closed doors that no one else can see, he sees right through us, right into our hearts. So what's, what's wrong with our world? What will it take to fix it? Well, first of all, we see what God sees, what God's take on the world is. And he sees evil, public evil and private evil. Secondly, what God feels, what God feels. What's that in verse 6? The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. I think often we think God's a bit like a speed camera. He sort of stands there uh, impassively surveying the world, and when someone drives by and breaks a rule, um, there's a sort of impersonal automatic process. The sensor sees the car, it, it takes a picture, a, a ticket is posted to us. That's our kind of view of God, an automatic sort of impersonal passive figure just noting what the world is doing, looking out for offenses. But we see here in verse 6 that that is not what God is like at all. See, he is grieved when we sin. He is hurt when we sin. It's a personal thing. He's not impassive. He's not impersonal. He takes it very personally. Um, the word there in verse 6, uh, to be filled with pain, is, is the same word used to describe um, Dinah's brothers later on in Genesis when they hear that she's been raped. It's the same word that David, King David, is, is used when he hears that his beloved son Absalom has been killed. It's, it's a deep, wretched word of agony. It's one of the strongest words that we could possibly read in the Bible. God is filled with pain. And it's, it's not just pain. The word also uh, conveys an idea of anger, frustration uh, with the world. I, I think we find it hard to think of God as being angry. We, we're told that God is a God of love. I think, how can he possibly be angry as well? But you see, God's love and God's anger are both aspects of his character. The opposite of love isn't anger. The opposite of love is apathy, of neglect. And actually, it's a great thing that, that God will um, judge the world. Um, we think of the Hitlers, the Pol Pots of this world, and we're glad that God is not um, neglectful in those cases. And also, God's anger is not like human anger. Um, when I drive through summertown shops on my bicycle, um, I get angry when a car cuts me up. Uh, in a flash, I'm angry. And when I'm driving through someone's town shops and a bicycle cuts me up, I also get angry. I get, we get angry so quickly as humans. But that is not what God's anger is like. God is incredibly slow to be provoked. It's taken them hundreds of years in the story of Genesis to come to this point. And even in these chapters, it takes months and months between when God announces judgment and when he actually provides judgment. He's incredibly slow to be provoked. But the warning here in Genesis 6 is that one day he will say, enough is enough. That's what God feels. He feels deep pain and, and anger at the evil he sees. It's very sobering, isn't it? When we think about what's actually wrong with this world, of course, there are lots of physical manifestations of the problem. But we're seeing here 
as if like, you want to see an x-ray through all that to the, to the heart of the problem, the core of it. And we're seeing what God sees the world and what God feels about the world. Finally, uh, what's, wrong, what's wrong with the world? Well, finally, we see God's promises for the world. Um, it's a bit like watching that film Titanic, isn't it? We all know what's going to happen, don't we, before we get to the end. But it's there in verse 12. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. What does God promise? Well, he does promise judgment, destruction um, in the end. And we're told in 2 Peter 3 that the flood acts for us as a model for what will happen to this earth in the future. When we look at the flood, we see just a picture of what will happen when Christ's return. That's a promise that God gives us. And it, it is extremely hard to hear. I don't enjoy uh, talking about it. It's very hard to bring it up. I know it applies to me as well as, uh, as all of us. But God does promise judgment. But that's not all he promises. There is a verse 8, which comes as a shaft of light to an otherwise gloomy story. Look down at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He found favor. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, this verse is crucial to understand if we are to understand the whole story of the flood. Get this verse wrong and we misunderstand the whole story. The key question is this. Does Noah earn God's favor? Is he so good, so blameless, so perfect that God is bound to bless him? Or is this simply an outrageous act of God's grace for Noah? Those are the two options. And I want to argue strongly that it is the latter. This verse is about what God has done for Noah because of his grace, not because of Noah's goodness. Let me uh, explain why I think that's the case. First of all, we're told the whole world is sinful in Genesis 6. No exceptions. And I think Noah is to be read um, in that category. Secondly, in, in, in Genesis 9, we read about Noah um, committing a sin. We'll come on to that in a few weeks' time. We know Noah is a sinful person. He's not perfect. He has his flaws. Thirdly, the whole Bible as a whole tells us that no human is without sin. We're all sinful. And we mustn't think that in the Old Testament, it was salvation by works. And in the New Testament, it was salvation by grace. No, for the whole Bible, humans have to be saved by grace, not by works. And fourthly, on a more technical note, um, verse 9 um, has this phrase, this is the account of. And that's a, a chapter heading we find throughout Genesis that tells us that a new um, chapter is starting in the narrative. And so Noah arrives in the scene in verse 9, and from 9 onwards it's about Noah. But up to verse 9, it's all about God. It's what God has done. And so verse 8 tells us more about God than about Noah. It is God's decision to be merciful, to be uh, gracious towards Noah. Of course, Noah is a great model to us of obedience and faith, but it comes as a response to God's favor, not uh, as a way of earning God's favor. That, that is crucial for us to understand. Noah doesn't deserve to be rescued. He's just like every single other person on the earth. But yet, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
And what does God's grace mean for Noah? Well, verse 14, God says, make yourself an ark. In other words, it means rescue. It means deliverance from what's happening or going to happen in the future. God does promise judgment, but he also offers rescue to us. But what about us? What should we do? What should we make of this story of Noah? Well, obviously, don't build an ark. It won't, it won't help you at all. Um, let me just uh, flick forward to, to Romans 5. These are wonderful verses indeed. Romans 5, 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us, isn't it? Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if we put our faith in Christ, we have peace with God and we have a wonderful rescue. So as we read the story of Noah, how should we respond? Cling to Christ. Run to the cross and say, I take hold of all that God offers to me at the cross. A gracious, free rescue. That's how the story of Noah should, should drive us, should make us feel today. Yes, we need to see how bad um, our situation is, what our hearts are like. But the whole point of telling us about the problem is that we would run to our Savior and find rescue. Just as we finish, there are, there are two extremes that I'd love us to avoid tonight. Um, one extreme is to think that I am too, I'm too far gone. You know, I'm just, I'm too bad a person. Maybe there's something I've done in the past that is just so awful. Or, or maybe there's something I keep doing today that I just think God will never, ever forgive me, never, ever accept me. Well, we've seen tonight how bad the world was, but how gracious God was to save Noah. There's no one here tonight who's too far gone for God's rescue. If we turn to Jesus, we can be saved. That's the message of Noah. But the other extreme is, is for us to be complacent. And I'm thinking probably if we've been a Christian for a while, it's so easy to forget what God thinks of our hearts, to forget that picture we have of Genesis 6, and to become complacent, to think that somehow we've earned our position. And can I just encourage you just to, if that is a danger we face, then just come back to Genesis 6 and then run back to the cross and cling to Jesus. We live in a world that, that needs to be fixed. There's something wrong with it. And yes, there are many uh, horrific uh, symptoms that we see all around us of suffering and, and strife and difficulty. But we've seen tonight, we've seen God's perspective on the world. And he goes right to the heart of the problem. We see what he sees, we see what he feels, and we see what he promises. Let's pray. Our Father, these are sobering words that we've read tonight. Uh, we, we know that you tell us these things for our good. And we just long that uh, you'd help us to put our trust in Christ afresh. That we would see ourselves as you see us. And that we would grasp with both hands the wonderful gifts of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.